Howdy doody. Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, he's not going to start. Maybe I can do it. All right. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> uh, this is Intername Here. I'm Zach. I am Chris. And uh, you you are you. <laughs> and you've stumbled and upon Intername Here. here. <laughs> you, we're happy you're here. Keep yeah, on coming sure. back. We love it. <laughs> welcome, welcome, um, welcome. This is the, uh, this is the podcast uh, of us telling each other. It's the 87th story. episode. Yeah, just... we're telling each other <laughs> stories about people, places, things, whatever, nouns. Yeah, there you and, go. And uh, we don't know what the other one's going to talk about until we find out together. Yeah. You know, that's a terrible explanation, but you get it. I mean, that's essentially it, though. <clears throat> it's hard to. It's a simple thing that's hard to describe. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you've listened, we appreciate it. Keep telling people. Uh, keep hitting us up with our email, uh, internet here, podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and thank you for the new emails. Yeah. And, uh, we generally don't reply. So if you're follow, wondering, yeah, we, uh, yep. uh, Chris is supposed to, Chris <laughs> is in charge of replying and he's, he's, he's failing. He's the, just C, now he's being, the CRO. He's the chief reply officer. Just now being made aware of that. He's but. just been hired. <laughs> he got the same salary he had before. Well, perhaps you'll start seeing some replies. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, it's Intername Here and Instagram, Intername Here Podcast. So keep, you know, share, like, you know. Love. Check out my my good artwork that never ceases to amaze, at least Chris and I me. mean, I, I giggle every time. <clears throat> so Give it a little giggle and a chuck. Oh. Chuck Ole, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this past so, week's been fun. More hot days like last week. We keep on breaking those records. Yeah, yeah, I mean. At least know, we're consistent. Where we are, it's say. been hot, but not like, you know, not like <clears throat> a lot of people have been having it. I think Arizona, someplace, Phoenix was 15 days straight over 110 degrees. That's insane. <clears throat> it's a dry heat, so. <laughs> right, yeah, so it doesn't feel hot at all. Stay cool out there. <laughs> stay dry if you're in the places that are flooding. Stay cool in the places that are hot. But please, pretend like nothing's really going on. Yeah. You know, it seems like yeah. nobody's been telling us this stuff for years. Business as usual. <clears throat> um, Business being the key word. Last week, you talked about <clears throat> um, the Ruby Tuesday where it may or may not have existed. Yeah. Talking about glitches. Well, locally... Well, this is in Lynchburg, Virginia, so semi-local. Right. <clears throat> this guy, William Davis, woke up hungry and drove to the Waffle House on Ward's Road around 3 a.m. Tuesday morning. Have you heard about this? No. When he got there, he saw something he never expected. It was empty. No way. And not just, like, no customers, but, like, no workers. Hmm. Um... He posted on Facebook Live, and like, there's dishes on tables that look like people just left them, like had just left. Is this a Ruby Tuesday? No, this is a Waffle uh, House. Oh, okay. Um, you could see, like, he was he he stayed in there for ten minutes and never saw anybody. Wow. <clears throat> uh, there was, you know, like there was steam coming off of stuff, like coffee pots and stuff. Like it just been, it was just left. So I don't know if everybody was outside. It was a Waffle House, so who knows what people were doing? Yeah, maybe cigarette breakout back it, or something. But like nobody for ten minutes. And then he left. He said, uh, usually that's a place of business. When you walk in, they say, welcome to Waffle House. And I never did see anyone, so I just thought it was strange. That's definitely um, strange. And he did notice, in, in his video, he notices that there's two cars out back when he left. One with the door slightly open. He said he couldn't tell whether someone was sleeping in it or not. 
So he, you know, he didn't want to go over there. Uh, huh. The manager said he's. A, it was the first he'd heard about it when the ABC News showed him the video. And he didn't want to go on camera, but said two people were working that morning, and to his understanding, they did not left the restaurant. It seems like they were out in their cars, which would mean that they left the restaurant. Right. But, <clears throat> sure. He, the uh, manager also added he'll be coaching. This will be a coaching moment for his employees, calling inexcusable. He doesn't want this to discourage anyone from eating at Waffle House. And he said, and the guy that made the video said, Waffle House is still a great restaurant. Don't not go there. So, wow. Yeah. That's, so it's kind huh. of a creepy video game, you know, uh, what is it? Fallout kind of. Oh, right. Yeah. You walk in and like stuff's there. Like somebody was just there. But now they're not there. Right. So. Yeah. It's uh, haunted almost. So but, if you yeah. go to like, I guess what I looked up was uh, empty Walmart or empty Waffle House. Sorry. Huh. And that's like the first thing that comes up. I'll show you the video afterwards. You can't see it and you can't hear it. There's nothing to hear. It's just them like looking around an empty right. Waffle House at three in the morning. Three in the morning is when Waffle House is busy. Gosh, yeah, that's crazy. Every table has its own. Like, this is the people that have been drinking. This is the people that are high. Right. This is the people that are on acid. This is the heroin table. Like, they're all. <laughs> the heroin table. You know, they're all, they're all their own. Yeah, and there's categories. nobody there. Yeah, but the, somebody had just left. Right, like it's obvious that. There should be somebody. Could be there. a glitch. You never yeah. know. There could be a glitch in Lynchburg. Yeah, I like to think that it's a glitch. Yeah. Let's just go ahead and think that it's a glitch. All right. Let's do it. Um, I got something that is definitely not a glitch, but of course, okay. trying to get my interwebs to cooperate with me here. Did you hear about the uh, the girl um, <clears throat> that scored uh, 37 points in the three-point contest? 37 out of 40? Wait. Like, out of 43 point shot, she made 37. Oh, okay. That's not what. Oh, at first I was like, how'd she get 37 points right, in a three-point yeah, yeah. contest? I'm well, the, I was looking at the headline, and that's what it says. And I'm like, well, let she me. She made 37 of 40. Yeah, she okay. made 37 of 40. Broke all records that exist on three-point shooting contests. Um, but, yeah, New York Liberty's Sabrina Ionescu broke WNBA and NBA records for most points in a three-point shooting contest by hitting all but two of her trays. So, 39, I guess? 38. <clears throat> well, she hit 37 of them, so I guess 39 was the number that mm. they're shooting, which is a weird number, but I said yeah. 40, but, yeah. Okay, well, well in here it says, writing this doesn't yeah, even know what number they're Yeah, they got about. it wrong because it is 37 out of 40, so that was they just got it wrong. Poor writing, but or poor editing. Yeah, well, they're probably the same. <clears throat> but um, her uh, 37 out of 40 surpasses the single round record of 31 in the NBA done by Stephen Curry in 2021 and Tyrese Halliburton in 2023 and 30 in the WNBA by Allie Quigley in 2022. Wow, she crushed that women's NBA <laughs> yeah, yeah. record. Right. Wow. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, she really she crushed all of them. But, yeah, um, at a certain point it said uh, looking uh, 20 consecutive at a certain point. Wow. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's a. Uh, what was her name again? Um, it is Sabrina Ionescu. It's I O N E S C U. Huh. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so she made 37 of. Of 40. Of 40. Well, yep. She's no Tom Amberry. He's Tom Amberry. Tom Amberry was a podiatrist, and he was known for holding the Guinness World Record for most consecutive free throws made. <laughs> How many did he make consecutive? How many? Okay, 12 hours. 
I feel like we've 12 hours he shot free throws straight. November 15th, 1993, at the age of 71. Um, <clears throat> how, how many do you think that he... How many do you think he made in 12 hours? In 12 hours? Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, I, I, not even trying to do the actual math. I'm going to say s- somewhere around 5,000. 2750 <laughs> consecutive <laughs> that's crazy he made it all in a row <laughs> and i think he even shot that's granny crazy. style and apparently he's consecutive after uh, it says that this record held for two and a half years before surpassed by ted st martin but i don't know what the deal is because he doesn't have a page ted st martin does huh so, but this guy is in Wikipedia. I, you just, I just looked it up since you were talking about that. Right. I was like, I know that this guy, and I'm pretty sure he's shooting granny style. But he worked with several teams after to set this record and worked with, including the Bulls, to help with their free throw average shooting. Huh. Um, yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. He decided to be a podiatrist instead of playing for the, he got uh, signed after college. He got signed to play with the Minneapolis Lakers. Before they moved to L.A. and decided to go deal with feet forever instead of being in the <laughs> right. NBA. So, gonna go deal with some. Feet. He passed away in 2017, but I mean, he was 71 in 1993. So, gosh, yeah, gosh, he lived to be like 95. So, huh. um, but yeah, I mean, that's crazy. That's a an insane amount of free throws to make. Twelve hours of just standing yeah. there shooting free throws, right? And like you know, you get to twenty five hundred. You know, if I miss now, <laughs> and even if you're trying to if you're trying to break that record, you're like twenty seven forty nine. Can you brick it? I mean, dude, at that certain point, you're making getting that muscle memory is going to get it in there. What a miserable thing to have to try to break the record of, really. Like I mean, like we talk about every week, almost like some of the things out there, like longest dog tongue. Like you could go for something easier than the fucking. Excuse my language. The like eighty five thousand free throws consecutively. Yeah, I mean you could go if you want to be, get a world record. There's lots of them that you can get for something. Right. It takes because like no you said, effort. you get to twenty seven hundred and you miss one. You're like, oh, right. You know, then you're nothing. Like, I, yeah. You're not anything. You're the you're the guy on that King of Kong because the, the the other guy. Right. That's you know. even more defeating than golf. You know, it's just. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I mean. How do you overcome that sort of mental defeat? I guess it's, it, it, compared to golf, it would be like uh, you have ten shots in a row that should have been hole in ones, and they all lip out of the cup. <laughs> you even know. hit the bottom, or of just the cup one. And come you know? out. I mean, I yeah. guess it's the same. Or just flag stick them all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but if we're going to talk about yeah. world records, actually, this July thirteenth, a Mexican candy company earned a, their own world record. What do you think it's for? Mexican candy company mm-hmm. um, for. I'll give you a hint. It's world's biggest World's something. biggest piece of candy? A big lollipop? Nope. Marshmallow. Oh. oh. Took a team of 100 people around 53 hours to make this <laughs> thing. Okay? Uh, the previous record was 205.25 pounds set in uh, Britain in 2019. Okay, so 205 point and a quarter pounds, right? Right. What do you think this new one from the Mexican Candy Company weighed? to break the world record how much did it weigh again 205 and a quarter pounds was the 
previous world record for biggest marshmallow. And so the new one? Yeah. yeah. The new one's probably going to blow it out of the water. It's like 1,200. 1,429 <laughs> oh, pounds. 1,429.47 pounds. God. So, and then, and then they also said... More than a 1,058-pound Steinway D274 grand piano. We always talk about how like they have like weird measurements. Right. Oh, this yeah. marshmallow weighed more than a grand piano. <laughs> um, wow. That's a, imagine being smothered to death by a giant marshmallow. I mean, you could eat your way out, I guess. No, uh, I mean, not one that big. Like, you just eat your way it would crush you. further into but it. But I, yeah, I, I think I mean, that's hilarious that like, the world record was 205 pounds. And they're like, we're going to break that world record by a <laughs> yeah. 1,200 pounds. Yeah, let's just go ahead and make it impossibly like attainable. And... Right. And then you're like, well, I'm not even going to bother with the marshmallow world record. Right. It's kind of like the consecutive free throws. <laughs> right. It's yeah. like, nah, I'm going to pass that one up. How long is that dog's tongue? Let's get that one. Right. Totally ridiculous. Oh, I mean, wow. I, I, I think it's fun, but I mean, what do they do with that? 53, pe- 53 hours for 100 people to make them. Yeah. Well, I don't even really like to eat marshmallows, but it's kind of making me crave a marshmallow. Maybe some Lucky Charms. Maybe they're like those uh, artisanal marshmallows that people make now instead of yeah. like those like Dollar Tree marshmallows. You know? <laughs> yeah. What's an artisanal marshmallow? They're just like homemade marshmallows. Right. Like look them up, but watching them cut them is like ASMR. I mean, I've had some of... homemade marshmallows. So yeah, they're pretty good. But they'll make like sheets of them and cut them, and people just watch them cut them, and then they'll like break them apart, and they're all like they Weird. look delicious. Yeah, but... I'm sure. People are weird, though. A 1,500-pound marshmallow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. People are not weird. Why? Oh, right. Yeah. Why? My bad. Why? 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 Um, um, yeah, so good luck with the, your marshmallow. Yeah. Good luck with the sugar, the we, sticky. That whole town's going to be sticky now. Ugh. Yeah, like we were just eating the that hottest sour week, stuff. The hottest week of the year, they're like, you know what we should do? Make a huge fucking marshmallow. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> How stupid. Uh, but it smells amazing. I though. bet. Yeah. Some kids bouncing on top of it. <clears throat> great times. Um, <laughs> it's great times. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, actually, I had the story. I'm not going to tell that story. It's kind of boring for. <laughs> so, you want to hear one that's not that. boring? That's yeah, I do want to well. hear one that's not boring. The Florida Highway Patrol said it was not an appealing situation when a semi truck hauling a load of bananas caught fire <laughs> on a highway. <laughs> These writers. This is who is this? Uh, ben Hooper. AP. Ben Hooper situation. from the from UPI. Uh, you go, Ben Hooper. Uh, the FHP said the truck caught fire at 3 a.m. on Friday. Did that have? Oh, that was on Tuesday. Was the Waffle House? What's going on oh, here? It's like, are they related? A mechanical mar- uh, mechanical issue on Interstate 75. Troopers said the driver was able to pull the truck over to the shoulder and stop, and no injuries were po- reported, and cleanup crews were summoned to remove the truck and scorched bananas. <laughs> and wow. I don't understand why these they, they have these articles, and you know what they don't have in this article? A picture of this banana truck on fire. Like how... Yeah. Like, you know, we got that video of that girl launching herself off of that... Um tow truck thing <laughs> right yeah, yeah daisy like duke perfect video it's almost like it was staged i'm not saying it was i'm just saying it's almost like it was staged right i mean well if, if you look at the the thumbnail for it you can see the picture but it is like it just looks like a truck that's on fire with some stuff around it you can't tell right. like i want to see pictures of these yeah. i wonder what a truckload of burning bananas smells like somehow i'm thinking it smells horrible well, like, what is the uh, bananas foster? That, yeah, just <laughs> it's a thing. It. It's a, I don't actually know that's a, what it that's consists. A, of. I mean, bananas, obviously, but like, I'm not, it's a dessert where they 
light it on fire. Uh, it's the fire. Yeah. So, huh. uh, be careful out there on the highways. <laughs> be careful out there. Watch out for the <laughs> for the <laughs> banana trucks. Apparently, <laughs> everything is going to catch on fire, crash, or go missing or be found. Right. Um, yeah, I am. Um, speaking of found, I found uh, Britannica dot com has a uh, this day in history feature. Right. Which, um, when I was looking for news stories and not finding anything I wanted to do, kind of like the one I just decided not to read because I'm like, eh. <laughs> okay. I wasn't That's finding. A good start. I was feeling uninspired, and so, uh, you know, I thought this was kind of cool. Uh, so I'm going to do some, you know, just a few of them here. Like back in 1965, what is today? July 15th? On July 15th, <laughs> um, the uh, Mariner 4 took the first pictures of Mars, proving that the. Uh, what people thought were canals the whole time they'd been seeing Mars and talking about people living on Mars right. and using the canals was actually just an optical illusion. Hmm. There were no kind of like that on face Mars. that they saw on Mars. Essentially, yeah. Once they like got better cameras, illusion. the better yeah. the cameras, the more they find out that these things are just distortions in the right. Doesn't look like a face hmm. anymore. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there you go. Uh, now was that taken by monkeys? It was. Uh, I, mean, I don't believe in space. What did she say? <laughs> if you want to hear some of the most unhinged, crazy shit you've ever heard, look up Candace Taylor. Yeah, K A N D I S S, which Although is already ridiculous. Some of that flat Earth stuff she was showing us showed Mars as flat as well. Okay, so, like all the but other. What did planets she say about space? I don't flat. know. I don't know about. I don't know nothing about space, and I, I don't, don't need want, to, yeah, or I don't, I don't want, want to. Yeah. yeah, she's running for governor. <laughs> right. It's like, well, I mean, yeah. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, out. let's She's see. Insane. <laughs> Another interesting thing about today, and this is an, <laughs> Jesse Ventura's birthday. Oh. Born in 1951. So yeah, we've, uh. Got the thermite. It melted the thermite. Nine <laughs> eleven was an inside job. The thermite. And had, the, I haven't heard that. He's totally into that whole, like. nine eleven conspiracy? Yeah. He's, I'm the governor of Minnesota. It's an interesting thing to look into, but yeah, it's not. Something he's to, to, but he sounds just like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that sounds. I got you. I got you on the Jesse Ventura impression or impersonation. That's pretty good. Go again. Oh, well, you want me to do another? Yeah, give, give it another. Oh, another. Yeah. I want to. I want to. You, you <laughs> when I'm not for waiting for it, yeah. yeah Linda I'm going to find a real, uh, a real uh, quote. Right. So yeah, Linda Ronstadt, born uh, this day in 1946. Let's see. Um, on this day in 2006, co-founders Jack Dorsey, Evan Williams, and Biz Stone publicly launched their online microblogging service, Twitter. And within the following decade, it had more than 300 million users. I think we all know about Twitter these days, though, right? What is that? That's that old thing, right? Yeah, People that old thing. Anymore. Right, yep. Uh, one more. This day in 1988, the thriller Die Hard was first released in U.S. theaters, launching a hugely popular series and helping establish Bruce Willis as an action star and probably fodder for anyone that thinks it's not actually a Christmas movie. So, hmm. Okay, so on... Uh, I added that last bit in myself. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on Larry King Live, May 11, 2009, Jesse Ventura was a guest, and uh, one of his quotes was, you give me a waterboard, Dick Cheney, in one hour, and I'll have him confess to the Sharon Tate murders. Yeah. Oh, that was great. I thought he was here in the room with me. If in a free society, how can you commit a crime against yourself? <laughs> I mean, it's just so... Oh, it made me clap my hands on that one. 
That's good. I ain't got no time to bleed. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. And then it comes. There's one in Spanish. I don't think that he said it. That's, I don't get that he said that. But. I mean, perhaps he speaks Spanish. I mean, when you have a when you look for a conspiracy, look for the violation of standard operation operating procedures. The thermite. The thermite. <laughs> totally ridiculous. I mean, that that might have been one of the smarter things he said. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably true. But <laughs> thermite. No, the uh, the the proper procedures, like the breaking of proper procedures, is probably a key that something's going on. Oh right. Yeah, yeah I mean he's. But right, that's you know he's also going way out there with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god places i like to go but i'm not a public figure <laughs> but ironically nothing on 9-11 nothing on the internet nothing nothing when the fbi was pressed as to why 9-11 wasn't included we don't have enough evidence yeah i he's just all over <laughs> you the place just like him though. and he looks like if you've ever seen the movie harold and kumar go to white castle he looks like yeah. that uh creepy guy that has the really hot wife that's like picks him up in the tow truck <laughs> right you know what i'm talking about and yeah, like I they're sitting in the truck him. and it's he's been like so long dude he's sitting in the truck he has all these boils and stuff and like they're looking at him and he's like i can hear what you're saying he's just <laughs> and then he's like you can you can fuck my wife if you want to <laughs> i think uh oh who is that guy i know who you're talking about yeah oh it's uh I'm looking him up too. Anyway, so he looks a lot like um, Chris Elliott does in Scary Movie. But anyways, that's uh, who? Yeah, I was like, I could see him as Chris Elliott. But. James Adomian is his name. Nope, that's why did that show me that shows him as the George W. Bush. Oh, sorry. Um. Anyways. Yeah. So, is it Christopher Maloney? Maybe it could be. Ethan Embry is his name. Ethan Billy Carver is, is his character name. Anyways, anyway, that's who yeah. that's who Jesse Ventura looks like with his bald head and his mullet. They call it a skullet, I think. Skullet. Yes. So yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so yeah. uh, I don't know if you have one for the week, but I have a dad joke. I just week. remembered uh, that I didn't, but um, I'm, I'll get you one. Okay. Well, I've, I'll give you mine first. All right. All right, what do you call someone who doesn't have a nose or body? I don't know. Nobody knows. Ah, I like that one. That's a badunch. What is that? (laughs) That's a rim shot joke right there, which is totally something different. (laughs) Right. Um, Why? 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 Well, because July's probably like hot dog month or sausage month or something, we got a sausage joke here. Okay. Whenever you get a bad sausage... It's just the worst. Oh, man. Yeah. That's just a dad (laughs) one-liner. Yeah, not even a joke, really. Wow. (laughs) All right. Yeah, so happy week on that one. Yes. (laughs) This week in dad jokes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We got some dad jokes. Dad jokes. about thermite? (laughs) Thermite. I'm going to look one up for now. And I'll see if I can find one on thermite for next week. (laughs) Right. There you go. Um, So I guess... I mean, you know, it's probably about that time. Yeah, we ready to move on? Yeah, we can move on. Move um, on to the, the dealio here? I don't know. You are going first this week, right? So we get to find out about some sort of other conspiracy that you're into. <laughs> no, nah, this week I I stay, well, I mean, it's 
not normal, but it's it's <laughs> definitely grounded in the in what everyone would consider the real world. <laughs> like okay. This, well, most people. This actually, we, we did find out earlier that a lot of people don't believe in the real world. Well, true, true, true. This uh, this has things that actually happened and evidence that it happened and who it was and okay, you know, like it's uh, probably one of the more straightforward stories I've done since. Okay. What Frank Nasworthy, the skateboard wheel? <laughs> that was the first one. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this is like Chris climbing back out of the hole that he's right. been in for well twenty three weeks. Somehow this one had eluded me for all of my life, and like, but there's stuff about this guy all over the place out there, and perhaps Uh-oh. you've heard of him. Uh-oh. I don't know. This is kind of scary because mine might be similar too. Oh yeah, is his name Elmer McCurdy? It is not. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I've all right. never. I don't think I've ever heard that. I mean, all I've right. heard the name Elmer before. Well, um, I'm going to... He's the glue guy, right? <laughs> That's funny, because when I was doing this, I was thinking of uh, trying to make a joke and lie that I was doing it about the Elmer's glue guy, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Anyway, it's as funny as that was. But um, I'm going to start it off by reading from sideshowworld.com. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, an I, article, I like this already. Right? An article written by someone calling themselves Freakopedia. <laughs> Right. Yeah. In 1976, Laugh in the Dark, a dark attraction located in Long Beach, California, leased their location to Universal Studios to film an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. While making adjustments to the set, one of the workers attempted to move a prop, a mummified, a mummified man that had been painted several times with phosphorus paint and was suspended from the ceiling by a noose. Grabbing the hanging figure by the arm in an attempt to loosen the noose, the prop man was startled when the lower portion of the man's arm hit the floor. When the police were called in, um, they discovered that it was a real arm. (laughs) That the person hanging there was a a real person. Uh, Laugh in the Dark located at two... This is actually from um, a newspaper article, which... uh, Actually, I'm sorry, police report filed uh, December 8th, 1976. Laugh in the Dark, located at 210 AAA West Pike Avenue, was entered, and their attention was drawn to the human-like display, which was hanging from a rope. Criminologist E. Williams and filing officer examined the display and noted beneath the outer covering there appeared to be bone-type structure having bone-like joints. There was also noted to be a small trace of hair on the back of a leg. The display remarkably resembled a human cadaver in size and proportion. So, um, yeah, when they uh, transported it to the medical examiner's office, you know, they were like, yeah, definitely it was a body that had been... um, uh, the autopsy had been performed, confirming the remains that, sorry, bullet wound that, let me just read this, I'm sorry. The body was transported to the L.A. Medical Examiner's Office where an autopsy was performed, fumbling around over here, confirming the remains were human, that the cause of death was from a bullet wound, and that the body had been embalmed using arsenic. That's what I was trying to get to right All right. There. Yeah, the uh, arsenic actually... Uh, back in the day was used to kind of mummify the body when they didn't know who was going to claim the body and so they didn't okay. like bury it yet. Oh, okay. So um so like linen. Yeah. Yeah, did they do linen that way? Hey, maybe. I don't know, but that the, he was preserved I guess. somehow. They just pickled him. Yeah. They pickled him. <laughs> so yeah, they he was a John Doe for a while, I think um for like 5 years. <clears throat> this is your second John Doe guy. Did I do another John Doe guy? Summerton man, yeah. Oh yeah, I did do that yeah. Summerton man. Well, this one, um, they they quickly find out who it is because uh, 
On, um, and it wasn't five years, it was five months. On December 9th, the coroner's office released a statement, and the Sonny family quickly identified the body as Elmer McCurdy. And how did the Sonny family know who the hell Elmer McCurdy was? Uh-oh. So, um, <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, I'm assuming, we'll find out. I'm assuming I know where this might be going. <laughs> but I might be wrong. Well, Anyways. Yeah. So the Sonny family knew who he was, but um, how did they, you know, how did we get to the Sonny family? And so at first, no one knew the mummy's identity. A break in the case came with the bizarre discovery of carnival tickets in his mouth, apparently stuffed in there by prankish visitors. The tickets bore the name of his last sideshow owner who identified him. This was Louis Sonny's family. <clears throat> he was the owner of um, the Wax Museum of Crime. So... While this was before the dawn of DNA testing, the L.A. County Coroner's Office also found that the location of a bullet wound in the chest, as well as scars, bunions, and other telltale signs, indicated it was old Elmer McCurdy. Um, The story of how McCurdy's corpse ended up hanging by a noose at the Laugh in the Dark tourist attraction is incomplete, and it's filled with holes. It would seem that somewhere along the way, the knowledge that this wax figure of a nameless outlaw was actually a corpse so that like that information was lost. I like, like that they said it's filled with holes, just like Elmer. <laughs> right? They missed out on that one. Like, what are they doing? Uh, I guess they weren't writing humor. <laughs> I guess they need to more, more. Of that. Yeah, his mummified body would travel all over the country. It would appear in carnival attractions, movies, and sideshows. Somewhere along the way, though, that they lost the fact that it was actually a, a real dead body. Wow. And they started to believe okay. that it was a a wax figure. So um, I found this L.A. Times article by someone named Steve Harvey. So I was like, well, when I was researching this, like there were so many articles about it, I, I could pick and choose. Really? Basically. I've never heard of this. Yeah, me either. I was so like, I mean, it was just Google entry after Google. I was like, wow, all these different articles about it. The craziness. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, this is from an L.A. Times article by Steve Harvey. I chose it because it said it was by Steve Harvey. And I'm like, well, surely not that Steve Harvey. Could be. But could be. Authorities pieced together McCurdy's missing years, the ones following his death, that is, and found that this King Tut of the Tumbleweeds had been a silent greeter for a Pawhuska, Oklahoma funeral home, a sideshow attraction for innumerable innumerable carnivals across the nation, and even a prop in a couple of exploitation films. So, from HistoryCollection.com, right? McCurdy's corpse was once forfeited as security for a loan of $500. He was also on display at a theater during the 1930s. The theater had decided to use McCurdy as a prop in their lobby for their 1933 showings of a movie called Narcotic. We also know that the same man who told investigators the corpse was McCurdy displayed the body during the 30s and 40s. This man was Lewis Sonny, and he was a former police officer who presented McCurdy in his Museum of Crime. Many people speculate that McCurdy's status was lost after he left the Museum of Crime. Along with his identity, McCurdy's travels during the 1950s and 60s are also lost. Traveling records for McCurdy do not show up again until 1967. So this yeah. started in the 1920s, they're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it was, uh, I'll, I'll go on to and, and say it was even before the 20s. Okay, and they found him in the 70s? Yeah, they discovered him again in the 70s. Well, uh, there weren't records of him like being used as a prop again until 67, after like okay. the 50s. Right. But, um, but it was another 10. Yeah, another so 10 years before they. plus years. Yeah, discovered this that. This IMDb a, page is huge. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, he was in things that I'm not even going to mention. Scott Bayo wishes his, his uh, <laughs> right. IMDb, IMDb page looks like that. Yeah. Wow. Craziness. So, um. <clears throat> 
Let's see, the story of how McCurdy's corpse ended up with Sonny is short and sad. Even in his life, McCurdy's true identity would be elusive. Again, uh, from SideshowWorld.com, Elmer McCurdy had been born to a life of shame in 1880 to Sadie McCurdy, an unmarried 17-year-old who still lived with her parents. While her father was never... While his father was never confirmed, it was speculated that it may have been a cousin who was seven years older than the young Sadie and who had lived with the family for a short while. In an attempt to spare the family the embarrassment of his birth, Sadie's brother and his wife Helen adopted the infant. His adopted parents raised Elmer along with his younger brother, slash cousin, for ten years until his father died father in quotes at this time aunt sadie in quotes moved into the house to help the widowed helen take care of the two boys after a brief period of time helen asked sadie to assume responsibility for elmer and sadie agreed the two women sat the young boy down to explain to him the circumstances of his birth taking the news well at first perhaps attributed to youthful naivete until about the time he turned 15 when growing when a growing feeling of betrayal by his mother prompted him to run away drinking and rebellious the young man worked at various jobs until joining the service in 1910 where he served his time as was honorably discharged his time in the service provided a small amount of training and explosives at this point in time this was the use of nitroglycerin Remember that scene? <clears throat> I remember that scene uh, from Lost, where Arts, the school teacher, blows himself up with that oh, yeah. old ass dynamite. Yeah, that's what makes like me in, think. Like uh, in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that one's probably one Indeed. that more people would be able probably to reference. More, yeah, especially these days. Um, but, yeah. yeah, where the, the director's <laughs> like, and then you go here, boo, just turn into pink mist. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. So, um. After the military, he still had trouble finding a job. Uh, he took to heavy drinking and criminal pursuits. He teamed up with three other men and um, set out to rob the Iron Mountain train. The would-be robbers boarded the train successfully. However, this being Elmer's first attempt at cracking a safe, he misjudged the amount of nitro needed, and according to reports by the Pacific Express Company, the door blew completely off of the safe, melted the nearly $4,000 in silver coins, and the explosion tore a gaping hole into the side of the express car. Wow. Using a crowbar, McCurdy attempted to chip the silver from the walls and floor it had adhered to, but with little success. <laughs> when the train pulled into the station, it was figured the robbers made off with $450. Which, I mean, you know, was, then still, was still a good, a good, a good haul, money, yeah. McCurdy parted ways with those partners and soon found new ones. Um, and then they pulled. Obviously, he didn't bring a resume when he. <laughs> right. How good are you yeah. with explosives? I'm good. <laughs> All right, we got you, Elmer. Right. But um, he apparently did some poorly planned bank heists. Um, there were no details that I found about <laughs> his those resume. Bank is yeah. what's your experience? <laughs> Trust me, that's his, experience. That's his right. resume. Trust. Me. Yeah, he must just be a likable guy. He's just a, yeah, he's yeah. a charmer, oh, Elmer. But um, he uh, McCurdy, McCurdy did uh, fail at bank heist, so he went back to robbing trains. Um, on his final <clears throat> robbery, he was killed. So McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4th, 1911, near Okeesa, Oklahoma. McCurdy and two o- accomplices planned to rob a Katy train, which I failed to look up what that was. I'm guessing it's just the uh, company. But, Probably. Um, after hearing that it contained $400,000 in cash that was intended as a royalty payment to the <clears throat> Osage Nation. <clears throat> However, McCurdy and the men mistakenly stopped a passenger a passenger train number 29 instead. They were supposed to do number 23. The men were able to steal only $46 from the mail clerk, 
two demijohns of whiskey, a revolver, a coat, and the train conductor's watch. A newspaper account of the robbery later called it, quote, one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. McCurdy was disappointed by the haul and returned to Rivard's ranch on October 6th, where he began drinking the demijohns of whiskey he had stolen. By this time, he was also ill with tuberculosis, which he developed after working in the mines, and with a mild case of pneumonia and with trichnosis. He stayed up drinking with some of the ranch hands before going to sleep in the hayloft the following morning. Unbeknownst to McCurdy, he had been implicated in the robbery, and a $2,000 reward for his capture was issued. This makes me think of, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, yeah. You stole from me and mine. (laughs) <laughs> or uh, Red Dead Redemption. Or... <laughs> right. Yeah. In the early morning hours of October 7th, a posse of three deputy sheriffs, brothers Bob and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace, tracked McCurdy to the hay shed using bloodhounds. They surrounded the hay shed and waited for daylight. In an interview featured in the October 8th, 1911 edition of the Daily Examiner, Sheriff Bob Fenton recalled... I wanted to do a voice, but I'm not going to. It began just about 7 o'clock. We were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired at me. It missed me, and he then turned his attention to my brother, Stringer Fenton. He shot three three times at Stringer, and when my brother got undercover, he turned his attention to Dick. He kept shooting at all of us for about an hour. We fired back every time we could. We did not... (laughs) 12-year-olds. We did not know who killed him. We found one of the jugs of whiskey, which was taken from the train. It was about empty. He was pretty drunk when he rode up the ranch last night. McCurdy was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest, which he sustained while lying down. Um, Wow, this guy is just... And I did find... uh, Bad luck and and not good. Like He should have just gone into something else besides crime. It sounds like he was... (laughs) Really bad at it. If the Keystone cops were the opposite, like the Keystone cops were the the good ones like the good cops and the criminals were yeah or the, the buffoons i think elmer would be the leader of this group. Elmer, he even got shot while laying on the ground yeah like, he's king buffoon for sure like wow. he's just not good at i mean he's i guess he's good at being dead though because <laughs> well actually be he's not more, because no one even knows he's right, dead but he seemed way more successful at being dead yeah than he exactly. ever did at being alive <laughs> all right i got gotcha. you but this is uh from an actual um article in um oh shoot sales shoot what was the newspaper here doesn't even say but anyway it was from a a local okiza oklahoma newspaper i know that much um it's entitled uh, the little article is entitled on trail of train bandits Pawhuska, oklahoma october 9th special officers are hot on the trail of the two bandits yet at large who held up and robbed a kentucky a Katy train, it's, it's got it, uh, they've misspelled it. A Katy train near Okiza last Wednesday morning, and it is believed that their arrest is but a question of time. With the complete identification of the body of Elmer J. McCurdy, the Katy detectives and officers believe they have rid the country of the leader of the gang, which has been committing so many <clears throat> depredations in northeastern Oklahoma. I love the way that they used to write right? like that. In southeastern Kansas during the past few months. The killing of McCurdy has entirely exploded the theory, theory spelled T-H-E-I-R-Y, that <laughs> local parties conducted the affair, although it is supposed that certain residents in that section of the country had knowledge of the affair. Sears, the man arrested at whose house was found some of the dead man's plunder, is being held for investigation. Higgins has been turned loose and Amos Hayes, the third man under suspicious under suspicion, came to Pawhuska Saturday night and surrendered to the sheriff, but he was not arrested. That's the end of the article. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of neat, though. There was 
clippings from this newspaper. And yeah. Yeah, the people even kept that kind of thing. Right, yeah. And it was very legible, actually. Um, what in tarnation is he doing? Like, <laughs> right? That's the voice that you're used to hearing. <laughs> well, the degradations of the degradations and the burger nation. Murder, murder, McCurdy's body was taken to the Undertaker in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, where it went unclaimed. Joseph L. Johnson, the owner and undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative, preservative typically used in embalming, in embalming in that era to preserve a body for a long period when no next of kin were known. But, I mean, they know who he is. So why didn't they just bury him? I like, guess they uh, know who he is, but no one has come to claim him. So, yeah, right, I don't but know. I mean, like, like he's yeah. some outlaw. Who cares? Right? I guess it was just uh, the way they did it. Throw him off in the desert yeah. somewhere, you know? Like, I guess that's... Uh, a falsity we've heard about these people over the years that maybe, they would maybe do this that. Maybe this is one town, like, the, the coroner right. actually yeah. like, I, I'm going to do things the right way. The coroner who took care of McCurdy embalmed him with too much arsenic that he really mummified McCurdy. However, without this much arsenic, there would have been no way McCurdy would have lasted through his travels or being painted for the funhouse. <laughs> he, then shaved, great right. Right he then shaved the face, dressed the body in a suit, and stored it in the back of the funeral home. We need somebody to identify him. Let's change what he looks like. Yeah. He's like, well, at this point, I'm just going to keep him. So he lay unclaimed. Johnson refused to bury or release the body until he was paid for his services. So I guess this guy's wanting his money. That's okay. He's so he's not seeming yeah. as like such a good coroner at this point. Right. Yeah. Johnson then decided to exhibit McCurdy to make the money back. He dressed the corpse in street clothes, placed a rifle in the hands, and stood it up in the corner of the funeral home. For a nickel, Johnson allowed visitors to, quote, see the bandit who wouldn't give up. On October 6, 1916, a man calling himself Aver contacted Joseph Johnson, claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's long-lost brother from California. The following day, Aver arrived at the Johnson funeral home with another man calling himself Wayne, who also claimed to be McCurdy's brother. Johnson released the body to the man, and it was shipped to Arkansas City, Kansas. The men who claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brothers were, in fact, James and Charles Patterson. James Patterson was the owner of the Great Patterson Carnival Shows, a traveling carnival. McCurdy's corpse would be featured in Patterson's traveling carnival as the, <clears throat> quote, outlaw who would never be captured alive, until 1922 when Patterson sold his operation to none other than Lewis Sonny. Lewis Sonny used McCurdy's corpse in his traveling museum of crime, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse James. In 1928, the corpse was part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American foot race. In 1933, it was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper to, to promote his exploitation film Narcotic. The corpse was placed in the lobby of theaters as a dead dope fiend whom Esper claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit. By the time Esper acquired McCurdy's body, it had become mummified. The skin had become hard and shriveled, causing the body to shrink. Esper claimed that the skin's deterioration was proof of the supposed dope fiend's drug abuse. Oh. After Lewis Sonny died in 1949, the corpse was placed in storage in a Los Angeles warehouse. In 1964, Sonny's son Dan lent the corpse to filmmaker David F. Friedman. It eventually made a brief appearance in Friedman's 1967 film She Freak. In 1968, Dan Sonny sold the body along with other wax figures for $10,000 to Spoonie Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. Singh had bought the figures for two Canadian men who exhibited them at a show at Mount Rushmore. While being exhibited there, the corpse sustained some damage in a windstorm. The tips of the ears, along with fingers and toes, were blown right off. 
<clears throat> I added the right there for some reason. The men eventually returned the corpse back to Singh, who decided that it looked, quote, too gruesome and not lifelike enough to exhibit. <laughs> wow. Hilarious. I, see, I, I, it took me a little while to even get past the fact, like, when you said it was mummified, I kept thinking of a mummy. Oh, and now, right. like, I'm making more sense of, like, okay, now this is, like... Like, essentially... He's a guy. Right. A, yeah, he's actually... <laughs> right. He looks like a... People so, think he's a wax figure. And, by like, the way, yeah. hey, kids, let's go look at this guy right. that has some ungodly amount of arsenic right. in it. <laughs> like, <clears throat> well, and somehow it never made it into my notes, I don't think, but he was painted orange at some point, and so he had this, like, paint over his body, too, at a certain point. Wow. So you could use him as, like, a, a traffic right. cone or something? Like, <laughs> yeah, I guess they would just stay... Well, they hung him by a noose, finally. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, but uh, so once he was considered not lifelike enough, uh, Singh sold him to Ed Leersch, part owner of the Pike, an amusement zone in Long... The amusement zone. An amusement park in Long Beach, California. By 1976, McCurdy's corpse was hanging in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse exhibition at the Pike. From a, a blog um, called Headlines and Heroes from the Library of Congress. In February 1977, the City Council of Guthrie, Oklahoma, was offered a burial plot in the Boot Hill section of Summit View Cemetery to give McCurdy a proper burial alongside three other notable Oklahoma outlaws. One of them was Bill Doolin, founder of the outlaw gang The Wild Bunch. Recognizing a chance to promote their city, they agreed. Two months later, a horse-drawn hearse brought a plain pine coffin to Boot Hill where Elmer McCurdy was finally laid to rest. Even after burial, McCurdy's legacy continues on in comic books. He is believed to be the inspiration for the DC Comics character Jonah Hex, whose backstory sounds oddly familiar. After he was killed in a saloon during a card game, the body of Jonah Hex is preserved and acquired by a traveling circus and put on display. He then moved from the circus to an antique shop to a warehouse to eventually a Wild West theme park in the 1970s, where he is finally discovered by historians. So, huh. That's, well, that's pretty interesting. Right? Yeah. I can't believe I had never heard I don't know if I want to say poor guy or not, because like I said, he seemed way more successful dead. being dead. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, it's huh. very interesting story for a pretty uh, nothing well, guy. Good. I, I'm really into, like, the sideshow thing. Well, and I knew you were, and I was like, I maybe you've heard of, heard of this one, guy. But, yeah. I mean, it's totally the thing. Like, they would always, <laughs> I mean, those sideshows were exploitative as, yeah. as, as shit, you know, like. Well, I was looking for a carnival story. Actually, I'd set myself that. I've got a couple on my like, list for that. Yeah. I didn't go with a carnival thing, but I mean, it's it's totally like I mean, you know, it's uh, most of the things were, you know, most of the more successful things were living people that were you know the fat lady like, or the tattooed quote man unquote or whatever. freaks, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, or you know, geeks, the hairy even. people yeah. or whatever. Uh, they had pinheads. They had all sure. sorts of different, you know. Yeah. Um, but they also did have you know like. This is half. This is a mer merman or whatever. Yeah, it's like, like the like a, it's of like a, a It's a body that's like sewn together with a fish or something like that. And then like they'd have like shrunken heads, which you know weren't really what they. I mean, a lot of it was just made up stuff. But this right. guy was actually like a guy. <laughs> yeah, this was. Yeah, and I mean, I guess and they just treated him like a thing. So like right. eventually, there's, and and it's funny that people kept buying him over and over. It's like yeah. Well, this is broken. Well, I'll take it. Now it's really broken. I'll take it. Like, the, the guys I get mean, more and more like skeezy the farther along. It must this have been purchase. pretty freakish looking for people to continue to be like, yeah, all right, I'll take that. Right? Yeah, but I'm yeah. I'm saying that the the level of skeeviness for the guy seems to have gone up 
as his condition goes down. You know sure. what I mean? Like he gets yeah. worse looking and the skeezier <laughs> freak <laughs> show guy buys yeah. him. He's like, I can use him. And then the next yeah. one's like, oh, I can use him, you know. <laughs> then they hang him by a noose. <laughs> and rip his arm and off. Painting him like Yeah. But yeah, craziness. I I wow. was blown away by that story. And I'm like, like oh. I said, also highly toxic. I would think. Oh I, I, yeah. By that right? time, maybe all the arsenic had gone away. I don't know how yeah, that works. I don't know how that works. But if they had to use more than they normally do. I mean, if it preserved him that well, then arsenic, like one little speck of that stuff, is deadly. <laughs> right. You know, like yeah. I mean, and he stayed intact for that long too. Right. And being like, shipped around, thrown into yeah, no one knowing. He, yeah, like <laughs> at a movers point. like tossing in the back of trucks. Right. Although like, maybe being in storage for. You know, that 20 plus helped, years yeah. probably helped. But, and people yeah. were stuffing things in his mouth and mm-hmm. everything. Oh, man. Yeah, that still had those tickets in his mouth from, you know, God knows how that long. That tells you how skeezy the guys were right. later. They didn't even, like, clean him up. Yeah. Dust off the shoulders right. or anything. Yeah, just wow. set him up. It's like McAdoo. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And yeah. his name was Elmer... Elmer Mc- McCurdy. McCurdy. M-C-C-U-R-D-Y. That totally sounds like the name of a guy that would be, like, some... Yeah, on some wanted poster back in the Wild West, <laughs> right? Five hundred dollars. Well, for the original dead or alive. The original Elmer Elmer's McCurdy. glue was made from his bones. <laughs> right, that's yeah. a, that's a fact. That and then was, they used uh, it. And that guy used it on his hands when he was shooting those free throws. <laughs> right. um, Indeed, funny yeah. because we were talking earlier about how sometimes these things kind of fall together, and sometimes they don't. Now mine kind of falls into like it seems like he might be more successful gone than he was here oh yeah so the name of the episode is better off dead (laughs) maybe you never know um mine is dan cooper you ever hear dan i have heard that name i don't know why you probably heard a different name but i you won't find out about that for a little while okay Okay. so picture this (laughs) thanksgiving eve 1971 you're in an airport at Portland, you're at Portland International Airport, right? And a man wearing a dark colored suit, a white shirt, a thin black tie, a black raincoat, sunglasses, and brown shoes comes up carrying a briefcase and a paper bag. He comes up to your ticket counter and pays $40 cash for a one-way ticket on flight 305. <laughs> flight 305 is a 30-minute flight from... <clears throat> Portland to Seattle, Tacoma. Yeah, definitely know who you're talking about. Um, the name he listed <laughs> on his ticket was Dan Cooper. Yep. Yep. So. Yeah, this is a good one, though. Uh, he takes it, he, he boards the plane, which is a seven, a Boeing 727, takes the the last row of the plane. This seat is 18E. So it's not a huge plane, right? Right. And he orders a bourbon and seven up. Yeah. Uh, on Which this is a delicious drink, actually. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the flight, this wasn't a real crowded flight. Like I said, it's six crew members and 37 passengers. I think that's 37 with Dan. All right. And soon after Dan, soon after takeoff, Dan hands uh, a note to a woman named Floris Schaffner, who was a stewardess, now a flight attendant, but at that time she was a stewardess. And she was seated directly behind him in like the jump seat or whatever, right? Right. And at first, she just thought it was like some guy giving her a phone number, so she just put it away. And then he turns, he turns around and says, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. <laughs> so, you know, Florence opens that note and, go, and it says, quote, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase, and I want you to sit by me. Oh, well, God. so she goes and sits down next to yeah. him. 
he shows her the briefcase and what she sees inside she thinks is dynamite and there's like wires and a big battery and like totally looks like a bomb to her right uh so he has some other demands and she writes them down and then takes them to the cockpit and the request was transmitted to flight operations this this time there's you know it's a whole different world 1970s on airplanes right yeah and uh you're smoking cigarettes for one thing that actually comes into play later um the request that they sent to flight operations says uh he requests two hundred thousand dollars, which is about one point five million dollars today. He requests two hundred thousand dollars in a knapsack by five PM. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency. Now front parachutes and back parachutes are like one's the main chute, one's the Yeah, like a the, different the backup chute, yeah. you know, like emergency. Uh so when Florence went up to the cockpit this other woman named Tina Mucklow who was another flight attendant. She had to take her place. So she's sitting with Cooper the rest of the flight. And he made more requests with her, which were included. Uh, fuel trucks must meet the plane upon landing. And all all passengers must stay seated while Tina goes out and gets the money. Okay? Yep. And he said the, the passengers wouldn't be released when, until he got the money. Uh, then the parachutes would be loaded last. Okay, so he wanted this done in a specific order, right? Uh, the passengers, the other passengers were told there was a minor mechanical difficulty, which this doesn't make any sense because it, it said it would affect the arrival time. And then the plane, I said plants, I don't know why. <laughs> On plane, the plane circled the airport for two hours until they assembled all the demands, so all the parachutes, the money, and everything. Yeah, right. right. Some mechanical so difficulties, mecha- but still we're flying. Flying around for two hours. Right. right. Could have just flown where we're going. Right. Well, they're over the they're over the Puget Sound, flying around the airport at this right. point, just wait, circling, <laughs> waiting to land. Um, Tina said later that he seemed really familiar with the local terrain. This happened in the, end of the afternoon, about two thirty, five o'clock, somewhere in that range, right? Okay. And he seemed familiar with the local terrain and correct, correctly identified towns as he flew over, as they flew over, and even McCord Air Force Base, which is in that area. Hmm. And she said that he seemed rather nice, and she said he wasn't cruel or nasty. So, seemed like a, just a regular guy to her. Right. She talked with him and even asked why he chose Northwest, and he said, quote, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines, it's just because I have a grudge. End quote. So, Ooh. and that he also told her that the, the flight simply met his needs, and we'll see about that in a little bit. So, uh, at five forty six local time, this initial flight of three hundred five lands, and Tina gets out of the plane and gets the ten thousand twenty dollar bills, all of which had been photographed. Right. Yeah. So she brings it in, and uh, he inspects the money, and then Dan releases the passengers. So. Man of his word, at least. Right. Uh, while the refueling and passenger release took longer than expected, uh, he was finally able to give the flight plan, a new flight plan to the crew. So he told them that he wanted to fly southeast towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. So it's about 115 miles an hour, 100 knots. <laughs> and at the maximum 10,000 foot altitude. So fairly low flying, right. I think. As far as airplanes go. You know. Sure. 
Uh, he also specified that the landing gear must remain deployed, the wing flaps must be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin must remain unpressurized. Sounds like somebody knows about flying. Right. Maybe a little bit. So, uh, they, the pilots said, you know, this is going to change your range and everything, so you need to refuel. So, the, Cooper and the, and the crew decided on Reno to get, to make a stop on the way to Mexico City, right? Okay. And uh, for takeoff, Dan wanted to have the rear exit door open and the stairs extended. Now, the pilot said, we can't do that. Safety, and it's just not going to work. So they agreed to lower the stairs once they were airborne. And Tina was told to stay aboard to assist. Mm. So Tina Tina and three cockpit crew on board. So it was like a pilot, co-pilot, and then the um, navigator or whatever. Right. And they take off at 7.40. 20 minutes later, it's about 8 o'clock, a warning light flashes in the cockpit, which in- indicates that a staircase had been deployed. Uh, the pilot uses the intercom system and asks Cooper if, uh, need an, if he needs any assistance, and the only thing that he said was no. And they just stayed in the cockpit. They didn't know if he was still on the plane or what was going on. And... Uh, at one point, this there was a uh, about ten minutes after this. There's a time where there's some anomaly in the flight path where it's like they're saying it's like where the staircase was used that it caused like the it to bounce back up because of the design of the plane, right? And so it caused the airplane to make a jump in elevation at this one point. So they think that might be when he jumped out. Yeah. Okay. So, but they didn't know that. At that point, right? right? So this is like after the fact. So as yeah. they approach Reno, they're using the intercom again to tell them they have to raise the stairs to land. Nobody answered. Said it a few more times, nobody ever answered. So they lifted the stairs and landed. Well, uh, after they landed, the captain searched the plane. They found nobody in the plane. And thirty mm-hmm. minutes after a thirty minute sweep, the FBI bomb squad, bomb squad declared the cabin safe. So they didn't find a bomb or anything. Right. They didn't find anything, including Dan. No Dan, no other. No Dan. They did no find other. a few things, including a clip-on tie, uh, hmm. a tie clip that was still attached to the tie. Right. Two of the four parachutes, eight Siggy butts is what I put on my notes. Siggy butts. Siggy butts. Eight Siggy butts, and sixty-six latent fingerprints. And that's basically, there's a little bit more, but that's almost all of the evidence for this entire thing. It's about one office box full. Yeah, yeah, not much. Um, They interviewed witnesses and immediately began to find possible suspects. And thinking that, you know, at this time they're like, well, maybe he just used his real name to get on the plane. So they found a local guy in the Seattle area named D.B. Cooper who was quickly eliminated as a suspect, but they kept using the name D.B. Cooper, and so now everybody knows him as D.B. Cooper <laughs> instead of the name that he always went by, which was Dan Cooper. I don't think I actually knew that. Yeah. <laughs> so D.B. Cooper is pretty – that's probably one of the more famous people that we've yeah, ever done that's, on this. that's how you know him. But Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And when you say the Cooper in the airplane, it kind of gives away something. Well, you said but, Dan Cooper. I was like, I definitely know that name, but I don't – Dan Cooper also yeah. sounds like a guy you would know. Sure. You know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, you know Dan Cooper. Real. Yeah, he works, he works on the street. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't normally ask me on the podcast, though. <laughs> right. Um, so they began to retrace the route that the airplane took from Seattle towards Reno. 
and worked to narrow down the area where he jumped out. They narrowed it down to about a 30-mile radius, which was around, excuse me, the southernmost parts of Mount St. Helens. Uh-huh. So they began searching the heavily wooded area by foot and by helicopters and by boats. Nothing was ever found in this whole initial search, right? right. Nothing. Nothing at all. So the evidence that they've got, the evidence includes a clip-on tie, like I said, with the tie clip, and it was found at his seat. Now, they did determine that this tie was sold exclusively at J.C. Penney until 1968. Okay. Um, now, the FBI, by the year 2007, the FBI had a partial DNA sample from the tie and the clip, but they're not, they're, there's not a 100% sure way to tell that's actually from him. Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, um, they found two hair samples, one limb hair, so like an arm hair or leg hair, and one head hair. And during an attempt in 2002 to build DNA profile from this, they found that they had lost the hair samples. Uh, Gone forever. The Siggy Butts. Siggy Butts. Siggy Butts are eight filter-tipped Raleigh Siggies from the ashtray in his armrest. So this in this short, you know, the, the flight initial flight was only like a 25-minute flight. And then I guess I mean, they sat on the runway and stuff, but they said he was a chain smoker, so he, there were eight yeah, cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's going to take you some time to get through those. You just have to smoke yeah, I mean, them one after another. Right. Um, so they got those, and they tried to get initially tried to get fingerprints f- from the cigarettes, but they couldn't. But they did keep them at the FBI field office in Las Vegas until 1998 when they tried to use them for, you know, d- building DNA stuff and found that they'd been destroyed uh so um the ransom money so you know like i said there was ten thousand twenty dollar bills two hundred thousand dollars um in 1980 on february 10th a kid named brian ingram who's eight years old was on a vacation with his family in a place called tina bar and some places spelled it the same way as the name tina some places spell huh. it t-e-n-a which i don't know if that that could be part of the, the mystery, you never know. Right. Um, this is on the Columbia River, about nine miles from Vancouver. Uh, this kid, Brian, was raking up uh, the riverbank to build a campfire and found three packets of bundled $20 bills, totaling $5,800. This was about nine years later, so, you know, the bills were pretty degraded at that point. But they were still, you can, you can go online and see pictures of the bills that they found. Yeah. And they were able to determine that those bills were from the hijacking and were still given still in the same order as when they were given to them. Like I said, they took pictures of every single bill right. and had them like how they were listed and everything. They had it all ready. And it was, it was, it was the money, part of the money. Uh, they found uh, the two parachutes that were left behind, with the one main and one reserve, were left in the plane, but no other chute was ever found, ever. Not in a tree, not in the woods, not in the riverbank. Went through some portal. Right. Uh, November 1978, a hunter found a 727's instruction placard for lowering the air stairs near a logging road within the basic flight path of Flight 305. So that's another little bit of evidence, but that's about it. Yep. Um, They made three different sketches have been drawn of him. The first one, they said... They called it the Bing, Bing Crosby sketch because it looked like Bing Crosby. <laughs> the second one made him look too scary, according to the. Yeah, uh, I've seen these pictures. Yeah, I'm, according I'm, to the I'm, witnesses, and then the third one was like, 
the one, right? right? The one, the sketch B is what they call the second one, was the, a witness said that it looked like a hoodlum and they remembered him, remembered him as more refined. And that one made him look older than he really was. Um, sketch B was revised, which I would call sketch three, but they call it, or sketch C, but they call it sketch B revised. <laughs> and a hijacker would easily be recognized from this sketch, and that's the one that everybody knows today. Right. Okay, so. Is that the one with sunglasses? There's one with and without. Okay. I mean, it's, but they're side by side usually. Boom. Uh, Tina and Florence gave nearly identical descriptions of the guy. 5'10", mid-40s, short black hair, combed back, uh, 170 to 180 pounds, swarthy, and with no real accent. Swarthy. Swarthy or olive-skinned is what it is. Right. Um, I like swarthy better anyway. Swarthy's a, a fun word. Um, DB seemed familiar with the area and may have been, according to like thoughts behind this, may have been an Air Force veteran because his naming of the base that they flew over and the cities, like uh, not to mention his knowledge of airplanes, aviation, terminology, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the type of oh, plane show. that they chose, that, that Boeing 727, was a type of plane that the stairs and engine configuration would make a jump easier so, so stairs come down on the back instead of off the side the engines are displaced to where it could jump out easier you know he, he likely knew these things right uh this model of airplane could fly at slow low altitude uh without stalling and it's one of the few models of airplanes that could release the stairs in flight and couldn't be overridden from the cockpit cockpit so in Vietnam, they use the same type of plane to drop agents and supplies into. So look, it's a commercial airline, but you can like hop out the back. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, now the demeanor of DB made it seem like he may have been a professional um, at doing this. I'm assuming because it says uh, uh, certain things like sitting at the back of the plane to avoid being approached from behind. Right. Most people aren't going to notice him because he's behind, and nobody's going to really recognize him. Um, using a bomb and not other weapons. Uh, they said that him asking for the four parachutes, which would be two per person. Like, you and I would use four parachutes in this situation. Right. Uh, it made it less likely that they would give him faulty equipment because they would think that he would have a hostage with him, right? Oh, uh, Right. Um, he was also careful about the evidence that he left, even though he left this tie. And, you know, I mean, who, who would have even known about cigarette butts right. at that point? Because they didn't even know what DNA was. Unless I mean, he left them on purpose for whatever right. reason. I think that he probably left the tie. because He probably took it off and thought he added it somewhere. But he probably didn't want to get tangled up or anything. Right, yeah. Even though it was a clip-on. <laughs> right. But he also demanded every note that he had, had written by or for him to be given back. And, you know, like I said, with the cigarettes and stuff, they didn't know anything about DNA and analysis and right. stuff. So you would never even thought about taking your cigarette butts. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, there are fingerprints on them, like, whatever. Okay, so what happened? Uh, the FBI feels like, this is probably the most likely anyway, that he feels like he didn't survive this, the jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that, quote, no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile an hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. Okay, I mean, so he was stealing money when hijacking planes. So right. he's a man who takes risks. Um, they also think that yeah, right, absolutely. I would shoot them down. He never, that. he never requested a <laughs> helmet or jump boots. And professionals and experts say that 
you would suffer leg or ankle injuries upon landing yeah. if you weren't wearing those, right? That's probably a good point. Um, DB never used anything in the paper bag that he had, so it's speculated that he may have had things in there to help with survival, like boots, gloves. I don't know how big this paper. I was thinking like a bag that you put a fody into, <laughs> right? But yeah, like I a think it's like bag. a grocery bag, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they didn't see him before he jumped. Once she, once Tina. Okay, so when he was trying to jump, he wanted Tina to stay back there, but she was like scared, right? Because she was afraid she'd get sucked out of the plane. Yeah. Absolutely. And finally, he agreed. After a lot, he agreed to let her go into the cockpit, where they all just stayed in there at that yeah. point, right? So once she left, nobody ever saw him and doesn't know what what all he put so on. He could or have had those things, right? Yeah. Um, he didn't appear to have an accomplice because it would have been they would have had to like the logistics would have been really hard because they they had to alternate the flight path because of Reno and Mex you know that kind of thing with the refueling and stuff. It would have so, been weird, and it was dark, and he couldn't have. And even an expert has trouble landing. Sure. And it's so wooded through there. It's more than likely he probably got hung up in a tree or like landed in water and drowned or something. But the ransom money has never been known to have ever been used. Yeah, I recall that. Um, and the the money that was in the bundles that were found had been unused, and that was nine years later. I mean. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I now, mean, it certainly sounds like he died. Now it is. I mean, they do say that it could be possible because in the months following this hijacking, five different men attempted to copycat this thing. Yeah, wow. And all five of them survived. Huh. Okay. Now they, they were different. I think all of them were during the day, and all of them were in different terrain and stuff. But, mm -hmm. but still. Um. So the suspects, right now. I'm not going to get to all of them because there were more than a thousand serious suspects that have been processed between 1971 and 2016. And by the way, in July 8th, 2016, the active investigation was suspended by the FBI because they decided they needed to focus on manpower resources and other things that are higher priorities. Right. So, sure. um, this includes other people like, there's other there's other suspects and included in the suspects are people that say that they've done it on their deathbeds and other people are like seeking per, um, publicity right right one of the ones was Ted Braden who's a master skydiver special forces commando during Vietnam War and he deserted his unit and became a mercenary sometime in that era and eventually got arrested for desertion and was court-martialed and had all these things that, and he was also looked kind of like him and he'd also been like uh charged before in stealing large amounts of money so he, right. he's a possible right right person of interest right um there's another one who named richard mccoy jr <laughs> and he was a demolition expert and helicopter pilot during vietnam and afterwards he became a uh, recreational skydive and was in the national guard and in April 1972, so, you know, five, six months later, he staged probably one of the best-known copycat hijackings on the 727, where he used a paperweight that looked similar to a grenade and an unloaded gun, demanded $500,000, four parachutes, <laughs> and left handwritten hijack constructions, and he bailed out over Provo, Utah. Now, two days later, he was arrested with the cash in his possession and was sentenced to 45 years. Well, two years after that, Richard, was it Richard? 
Yeah. Richard McCoy. Richard yeah, McCoy. Dick yeah. McCoy. Oh, Dick McCoy. Dick Mac. Dick um, Mac. He uh, he escaped two years later, and three months after his escape, actually, what's funny about his escape is like him and a couple other inmates hijacked or stole a trash truck from the jail and just drove it right out the, out oh, the wow. gate, like through the gate. Right? <laughs> um, three months after he escaped, he was killed in a shootout with the FBI. So. Yep. Uh, in a book called D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, uh, this parole officer named Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Kalami, Kalame, I don't know, uh, they assert that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. They cited obvious similarities in the two hijackings, which I'll give them that. Yeah. But, I mean, they released a lot of this information to the news, right? Um, claims by... McCoy's family that the tie and mother of pearl tie clip uh, left on the plane belonged to McCoy and his own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. He just doesn't want it to. Yeah, how could that be one of the things? I'd much rather go to prison being thought of one thing than thinking, that's not right. me. I mean, I also deny that I'm him. Right, yeah. Oh, but do you admit it? <laughs> and that's what it really is. Um, the proponent of the claim from the family was that it, he was uh, from the FBI agent who killed McCoy, who said, when I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. Now, the FBI mm -hmm. does not consider him a suspect because of description differences and evidence that he was in Las Vegas on the day of the, that it happened. But, you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, most of the other suspects that are major suspects, I mean, Wikipedia probably has 10 or 15. Right. Uh, most of them had similar stories. They were... You know, military guys, uh, paratroopers, you know. Some of them were angry at the airlines for one reason or the other. Uh, they've also removed a lot of these people from because of evidence, DNA, right? Right. Now, there is a conspiracy suspect, which actually this guy is on my list of people to maybe do one day, is, uh, well, on this show. And uh, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> Conspiracy suspect was John List. I don't know if you've ever heard of John List. I feel like I know the name. He's an accountant but... from New Jersey that killed his mother, wife, and three teenage daughters. Oh. And he killed them 15 days before this hijacking. And when he did that, he also had withdrawn $200,000 from his mother's bank account and disappeared. Hmm. Um, he came to the FBI's attention because of the timing and the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder had nothing to lose. And... I said, and his description being pretty fucking similar, if you look up John List and you right. look up D.B. Cooper, it looks, they look like the same guy. I think, they, um, I think it was a pretty standard look. I think they that cover point. that. Uh, there was a documentary more recently on Netflix, maybe since before you even canceled your Netflix, right. that uh, was about D.B. Cooper. It was like a three-episode thing. Okay. And I think they cover it. I remember seeing it. I mean, it, they, it totally makes sense. Right. I mean, the timing's right and everything. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think it's just like that you know, middle-aged, long-faced white guy in a suit with glasses <laughs> right. kind of look of the yeah. 60s and 70s, right? But yeah. List was captured in 1989, though, and in, he denied any involvement, and there was no substantial evidence that implicates, implicates him. And the FBI does not consider him a suspect, but it's a good thought process. You know, it's always a fun conspiracy kind of oh, thing, I sure. guess. I mean, yeah. not that any of that was fun, but right. I mean, thankfully, if if anybody died from any of this, pretty much it was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Like, he didn't kill anybody. I mean, whatever. So, 
Uh, airport security did change, however, at this point, because uh, it required airlines to search all passengers in their bags. In 1972, okay, <laughs> how many hijackings do you think there were in, air, in U.S. airspace in 1972? U.S. airspace in 1972? Airplane hijackings. Oh, man. They... Probably more than one would think, but I'm not going to put it more than 20. 31. 31. 31. Wow. In 1972 alone. Wow. After they changed these rules the next year after that, it dropped to like 15, but still like... Wow. It's still a lot. We don't even think of hijackings at all. Right. Nowadays, the hijackers is like some asshole that's like like that lady that just claimed she was drunk and... said she saw some guy that didn't exist in the back of the plane. Or oh, something. right. We we deal with yeah, people with uh, yeah. issues. They're not stuff. like, I mean, not that it doesn't happen somewhere sure. still, but I mean, it's 31 times in 1972. That's like. That's insane. That's close to one a week. You know well, I mean? No wonder they changed whatever rules they right. changed. So, yeah. uh, well, they just started looking at people's bags at that point. But at that <laughs> right. point, you didn't need an ID to buy a ticket. You know, you didn't need any of that stuff. You just bought a ticket. You could pay cash, get a one-way ticket. Yeah, they basically also, no questions asked. They also yeah. redesigned the plane to use this thing called a uh, Cooper Vane. And the Cooper Vane is involved. It's this, it's a, uh, prevents the lowering of the air stairs during flight. So what it is is when the plane takes off, it's on the outside of the plane. When the plane takes off, this thing is pushed by the air to, Close uh, won't this let the lever, door open. But when the plane lands and it's stopped, then that lever opens back up, and then the stairs can. So it can't be, it can't be uh, controlled from the inside at all. Right. So you can't open those stairs. So they changed that, and then they also mandated peepholes in cockpits, which is a good sentence in my opinion. Yeah. Peepholes in cockpits. Um. <laughs> yes, it is. And people at this point too, if you paid cash, day of. You were given extra security. That means that they'd like look in both your pockets instead of one, I guess. I don't know. Um, now, in 2013, this guy named Earl J. Cosi, Cozy, I'm not sure, he uh, packed the parachutes for this for D.B. Cooper, right. and he was found dead in his home, and he was found dead with blunt force trauma to the head, and the perpetrator's never been found. Some say... How soon after? Be, this was in 2013. Oh, okay. So, yeah, 40, right. 40 years. <clears throat> I mean, um, they say it could be linked to D.B. Cooper, but authorities don't have any such links. But, well, you know, then, part of the conspiracy, he's coming back to get rid of all the people that might know who he is. At this point, at this point, D.B. Cooper would be yeah, 85 years old or right. something like that. And, I mean, yeah. Nah. So... <laughs> <laughs> obviously like you said there's documentaries there's lots of documentaries yeah. lots of books yeah the more recent netflix one was actually really entertaining but, yeah, there's but, places all over the pacific northwest that have theme promotions sure, and sell souvenirs yeah. and then late november every year in vancouver washington man i've got a lot of spe- i've spelled vancouver and or vancouver. vancouver no no n but it's vancouver washington uh, late November, they have a multi-day gathering of research and enthusiasts and get together to celebrate CooperCon. Ah, uh, CooperCon. Yeah. It's better than Cooper Day. There, It was Cooper Day at one point. And Dan then they, Day. Yeah, DB Day. <laughs> um, so this, the, the case of DB Cooper remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. And that, as far as I could tell, was in the world. Because, huh. I mean, most of the time... <clears throat> 
they do this kind of stuff, they catch the person. Right, right. Like yeah. they, they land with the plane, like all those or they, other they, copycats, or I they, mean, yeah, they yeah. find them after they land, or they like, they blow up. The, unfortunately, they blow up the plane, you know, right. they, that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, so that's DB Cooper. I yeah, mean, you know. I mean, I like the the Dick McCoy theory, but I think he probably died. I, I think so too. I like to think that he didn't. But and that the, the only thing that's weird know. is that money was found all in one place. It's almost like, but you know, I, what happened is it probably fell. And all like fell together, maybe. Yeah. Or got washed down the river. But I mean, if it got that, that's the thing that would be weird because it, it wouldn't, even if it fell or washed down, you would think that they'd spread apart and not be all right together. Yeah. But the money was never even used, never touched. It's so. almost, yeah, it's almost like if he did survive, perhaps it was about something besides the money. Just even. saying that he could do it. Right. You know? like, I mean, yeah, I mean, but I mean, or he did survive but couldn't find the now, money. Now, also, how hard would it be to, any of that money it's not like they had you know every it's not like every grocery store had cameras and yeah. computers everywhere and stuff this is the 1970s right well, so i mean you said i forget what the guy's name who did do a, a heist later on for five hundred thousand dollars that was mccoy that was mccoy okay yeah like uh i mean it makes sense to me that you know, perhaps he couldn't find the money. He survived, and he's like, "Well, damn! Now I've got to do it for basically double." <laughs> right? <laughs> because yeah, for whatever yeah, yeah, reason, yeah. like he needed the money. He's like, "Now I got to." And go I mean, back you know, most of these people, like, mm-hmm. I mean, most of them are dead now. So mm-hmm. they said that the case will completely go away once DB Cooper will have been what they estimate would be ninety-nine years old. I guess it's some sort of statute or something like that. Wow! So. Wow! Yeah, it still technically could be solved, but yeah. They don't. They don't even consider it. I mean, he he stole two hundred thousand dollars, which you know is a lot of money right. today. But, but it's it, not it's even still, a case anymore. So. And I mean, what he didn't blow up the plane. Everybody came out safe mm-hmm. they, at the very least. At the very least, that the the criminal died. Right. So yeah. the end. Yeah. But you know that whole type of thing really leaves like this allure of like you know it's funny how we like you know. Uh, idolize in certain ways the criminal gets away with it kind of thing right like you don't want them to but you know jack the ripper like nobody knows who that is but they're like oh wow it's an important person in history even though he's a terrible person right yeah not so much jack the ripper but definitely uh dan cooper i mean just the the style of it the way he did it makes you kind of root for him a little more than right. Jack the Ripper. They think he might example. be Canadian too because there's in Canada there's like a French Canadian comic book series where the main character is named oh, Dan right. Cooper. Now that you say that, I, that's in that documentary. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the possibilities are open for a lot of different mm-hmm. things. I mean, it's one of those that's really fun to to get into. I mean, there's even the, there's even like some people think that maybe the whole thing because the authorities never saw him. Right. So it could have been some inside job from the from the uh, pilots and yeah. stuff where they threw the money out because they didn't give him a knapsack. So he had to use one of the parachutes to like make a knapsack. Yeah. Like, but he took that with him and like. So I mean, there's a, the thing is, it's, the fun thing is, you can go on 15 different spokes off the wheel and have exactly. a different story. Like I said, there's 15 or 20 that Wikipedia talks about just suspects. Right. Now, some of them have, like, a little blurb, and other ones have, like, a big, long paragraph. But, I mean, that's one of that. There's even, like, there was even a thought that a woman did it. Like, I Yeah, mean, yeah, I recall seeing that, too. So, yeah. 
you know, it's just kind of fun. So, I mean, you know, like I said, both of us kind of did somebody that seemed to be more successful being dead than alive. Essentially, yeah. Which is kind of interesting. They, so. Yeah, they had more story to them. Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe they mummified D.B. Cooper somewhere and he's like in some storage unit in Seattle or something. Right, yeah, he's hanging in some fun house. Yeah, by his neck. By his neck. But, I mean, you know, it's so wooded out there in those areas, you'd think that you would have found like a – a parachute getting hung up on a tree or something, especially in the... Yeah, I was like, thinking, yeah, I, I didn't, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, like the parachute not being found is something that's like, hmm. Like part didn't of the... even open it. Like, I mean, it might have, I mean, they they, right. they claimed that they didn't mess with any of it. They, like I said, they didn't know that he wasn't going to take somebody with him. Right, yeah. So, but I mean, if it was, if it was an inside job, then they would have just thrown those parachutes out the back. And, right. You know what I mean? Just yeah. pretended like, oh, he must have jumped, you know? <laughs> yeah. But kind of interesting. So D.B. Cooper and your guy was Elmer. Elmer McCurdy. Elmer McCurdy. Two different accents, I'm sure. Probably. Yeah, I mean, we saw the way Some that dastardly boys. newspaper article was written back in the day, 1911. Yeah, definitely. That was a little bit before mine. They didn't. They would have freaked out over in an airplane back then. <laughs> right. Like, so, <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. So, yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's another one that we got in the proverbial books. Yeah, that's another one down. Um, it's time to get rid of your organs. Yeah, totally. It's usually you need to the order of things. Organdonor.gov. Yep. Give them up. But before you do that, email us. Email us. Yeah. here podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, be nice to everybody. That's a good idea. To actually um even if they're batshit insane and they think the earth is flat yeah if Why? nothing else it helps with your road because it's the right thing to do <laughs> right and if you want if you want to go on a road trip go to our last uh episode of crackers check out any of our crackers yeah tell all your pals we have any fun. sort you of should too. any sort of mummies or cons that you know too tell them yeah and uh we'll see you guys on the next one bye